and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Your handout says verses 1 through 8. We're going to go verses 1 through 7. Um, And uh, we're looking at the the messages to the seven churches. And as we look at these messages to the seven churches, this one to Ephesus, uh, kind of the idea as, as you look at this church is they're all head, no heart. Um, they, they know a lot, but their heart really isn't in their actions. And so we're going to be talking about love this morning, okay? Uh, that'll be one of the things that Jesus talks to them about. He says, return to your first love. You've left your first love, return there. Um, and I think love is a fitting thing to talk about on Mother's Day as we look at this. Um, we were recently at a family barbecue. Some different families were there, and uh, hang, the guys were hanging out outside. The women were hanging out inside, and the kids were all playing outside. And one of the kids, he, he kind of starts walking up the steps to the deck, and he trips and falls and bangs his knee and starts, starts crying. Well, all the dads are right there, and we're like, rub some dirt on it, buddy. You know, like suck it up, buttercup. And uh, he's kind of crying. And that's, that's how dads approach those types of things. You're good. Stand up. Rub some dirt on it. Move on, buddy. And uh, he's still crying. And one of the moms comes out and grabs him. Are you okay? And, you know, so moms, if, if we didn't have moms, we know the world would be a far less tender place. Um, if, if moms took the same approach to parenting as dads did, uh, we would all be far more calloused, I think, than we are. Um, and so there's this element as we look at love as, as God made male and female in his image, man and woman. So there's, there's an aspect of where God has, right, Adam is, Adam is created and he looks at all the animals and none of them are a match. And he says, there's, there's not a corresponding part to me here. Um, and so God puts Adam to sleep and he takes a rib out and he makes woman. And, and you see that God then says that he's made us in his image, male and female in his image. And so there's an idea uh, that when we see male and female, we see the completeness of the image of God, that there's a tender side and there's also sort of that tough side. Now that's not to say that moms can't be the tough side. Uh, a story of my mom, when I was a teenager, uh, this is back when computers, you know, you didn't do things on Google Docs and it didn't autosave. And so I'm working on this big report for school and I'd already lost it once. So I typed a whole bunch of stuff and then I didn't save it and I lost all the work that I had done. And so I'm sitting down, I'm working on this report and my mom comes in and if you guys know me, the other thing I need is I need a proofreader. I need somebody to go through stuff and tell me I did words backwards and left some words out and those types of things. So my mom's proofreading it for me and uh, she, she clicks something and it disappears. And I, I went, I actually fell down on my knees. I'm like, no, you lost it. You, you, and like a hysterical teenage kid afraid that I just lost my report for the second time. And my mom said to me what all moms want to say to their teenagers. She looked at me, she said, are you on drugs? Um, she had just clicked the minimize window and I was like, oh man. Um, so moms can do the tough thing too. Um, but uh, as, as we look at love this morning, there's, there's, a, there's a time and a place for one of the themes that we see within Revelation with Jesus is that there's a time and a place where he, he steps in and he tells us the things that are wrong. Um, but he also encourages us with his grace 
and his kindness and his love. Uh, there, so as we go through this, as we look at these seven messages to the church, they resemble prophetic messages. Like if you were to read Amos chapter one or two and, or Ezekiel chapters 25 through 35, these resemble those types of prophetic messages. And those types of prophetic messages, they have a tendency to follow a pattern. And what we see here in Ephesus or in, the, in these letters is there's an address. Um, Jesus tells John to write something. And then Jesus used one of his titles that you see in chapter one. And then there's a, a praise or a commendation to the church for their positive deeds, all except one church. Laodicea doesn't receive that. And then there's a blame or rebuke for the church's negative deeds. Um, uh, there's two churches that don't get that, Smyrna and Philadelphia, because they're undergoing perse uh, persecution. It seems like Jesus just wants to encourage them. And then there's a call for them to repent of the imminent judgment that will come on them if they fail to repent. And then there's a call to hear and obey what the Spirit is saying to the seven churches. And then finally, there's a promise that those who overcome will, will be victors. They will, they will experience victory in life. And so you have this pattern, these seven different things, this address to write something, a title from Jesus, um, a praise for good deeds, a rebuke for bad deeds, a call to repent, a call to hear and obey, and then a promise that those who do so will receive blessing and overcome. They'll be victorious in life. And so as we go through it, that's what we're going to see. There's sort of this two things happening. One is here's a praise for the good things that you're doing. And here's some areas that we need to deal with. Okay. And what we're going to see in this church uh, for Ephesus. And as we look at Ephesus, we, we know a lot about this city from the scriptures and from history as well. Um, it was the fourth largest city in the Roman empire with about 250,000 people that live there. Um, they found an inscription in the city that uh, they described themselves as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. And when you hear the word Asia in the Bible, don't think of uh, the Far East, but instead in Roman terms, that was a, a province, modern day Turkey. Um, and so they, they viewed themselves as the first and most important city, greatest city in that area. Uh, the, the temple of Artemis was there, and that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that stood until the Goths destroyed it in the fifth century. Uh, there was also a temple uh, to, to Rome that deified Rome, and also a temple to the emperor deifying him. And so there's these different aspects of false worship that are a major part of the, the culture. We'll talk more about that as we get into it. Uh, but the church itself, they, they, were, they were all head and no heart. And as we go through this, what we're going to see is that good work and good works and truth, they're, they're commendable, but without love, they lose the beneficial goodness. They be, that becomes void. Uh, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we could, we could do all these things, but without love, we're just a, a clanging gong, a noisy symbol. So in other words, you can know all the truth and you can get things right every time, but if you present it without love, it just becomes something that is beating people up rather than lifting them up, okay? And that's what this church we're going to see is something that they're guilty of. So let me pray, and then we'll look at uh, these verses together. So, Father, this morning we do thank you for the opportunity to be together. We thank you that you have created us in your image, both male and female. Uh, we see that as, as male and female come together, there's a deeper understanding of, of who you are. Um, you've created us that way. You've created us with tremendous value and virtue, and yet through the fall, that value and virtue has been corrupted. Um, we, we are incomplete without you. The, the idea that we could be complete without you is something that we need to address in our lives over and over again. The idea that we can be whole or complete or experience life or pleasure or anything apart from you is a bad idea. And so uh, show us that as we look at this this morning. Uh, let us understand the balance between truth and love, grace and, and, and truth. How, how do these things come together? 
Um, we see that ultimately in your son, Jesus, who revealed both grace and truth to us. And uh, we thank you that his life is now living in us as, as those of us who have come to repentance and faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Uh, that, that same life is in us now. That's, that's unbelievable that you've done that for us. So I pray that we'd be able to see these things, uh, live a more meaningful life as we do so, seeking you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so he says there in verse 1 of chapter 2, Write to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So there we get the command for John to write something and then a title of Jesus. He's the one who holds the seven stars. If we remember back to the first chapter, the stars represent angelic beings who are interacting with the churches. And then the lampstands represent the churches. And so he's saying that he holds the angelic beings in his right hands. And Jesus is somebody who walks among the churches. He knows what's going on in these seven churches. He knows what's going on here. Um, as, as a church as a whole within the, the churches that are in our valley and in our area, uh, God is not unaware of what's happening. In fact, he's very much aware. He has angelic beings that are uh, a part of overseeing what happens in these churches. That's kind of what's being taught here. And Jesus is walking among the churches. He's not absent. He's not far off. He knows what's going on and he cares. And so he says in verse 2, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have preserved and endured hardships for my name's sake, or for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. So he tells them here that they have, they have good teaching, they have discernment, uh, there, there's, there's effort, there's endurance, all the, the quantity of these things is present. There's a lot of it going on. Uh, they won't tolerate evil people, those they won't bear under, they won't abide with those who uh, do things that are dangerous or injurious to other people. They're not going to be a part of that. If there's actions that are going on that are causing people to be devalued or hurt, they're not going to go with those teachings. They won't tolerate that. It says that they've tested, that's actually to put to trial those who have called themselves apostles. Uh, when we look at the early church and that phrase apostle, the, the Greek word literally means a messenger, an envoy. Um, but it was understood as a title in the early church for those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus resurrected from the dead and who had received specific direct commission from the risen king. So we see this in Matthew chapter 28 with uh, the 11. We also see this in, uh, in Acts chapter 1 with the 11. And then Paul comes along and he describes himself as one untimely born. But Jesus shows up to him in uh, on the road to Damascus, and he commissions him. Uh, Paul would also say that he, when he went away, he received direct teaching from Jesus for a two or three year period. Um, and so, these are people that have been that have seen Jesus risen from the dead, and they have received a direct commission from him to start the early church. And then they plant churches and they set doctrine. And so, one of the things that we do now is we recognize that while we may still have a call to plant churches, we do not have a call to set doctrine. We maintain the teaching teaching that the apostles laid before us. And so anytime somebody would plant a church that does not maintain the, the teaching that the apostles have laid before us and have put within the scriptures that God has preserved and then given to us, uh, anytime that somebody would do that, we recognize it as wrong and false. And that's what Ephesus, the people there, are known for being able to do that. They are known for being able to spot teaching that does not match the apostles' teaching who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, as um, appearances and ascension. These are people that saw all that and they are very good at spotting 
teaching that doesn't match the apostles' teaching. They're, they can call it out. They can recognize it for what it is. Somebody shows up and they say that they have a, a new word from God and it doesn't match what the apostles' teachings say. They go, no way, we're not going for it. And so they're able to do this. And so they, they're able to they endure hardship. They've gone through difficult times. We know from the scriptures that this has gone on for a period of, of decades, 20 or 30 years by the time that this is written. The church in Ephesus has been there um, and they've gone through this multiple times, multiple occasions where somebody has tried to step up within leadership within the church. Um, Acts chapter 20, Paul says that there's going to be those who are leaders in the church in Ephesus who are going to draw people away from the true teaching of Christ and draw them to themselves instead of Jesus. That's another thing. If somebody is glorifying themselves in their teaching within a church and they're not pointing to Jesus, big red flag that we've got the wrong idea. If they're, and maybe, maybe they're not really pointing at themselves. Maybe they point at some sort of pop psychology or different answer to life than what Jesus offers. Those are red flags that we are not following the apostles' teaching. And so you want to avoid anything that looks like that. And the church in Ephesus is known for being good at this. They're able to spot these things. Okay? And so they, they've, they've persevered. They've endured hardship for Jesus' name. They've done this in his name. It's not for themselves, but it's for him. And they've not grown weary. They keep pressing forward. And so the, the idea or the, the word that is used within Christianity for right teaching is orthodoxy, proper doctrine. And so they've maintained orthodoxy. They've maintained the apostles' teaching for decades, and they're continuing to do so. But, he says in verse 4, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you first, excuse me, the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so you have this quantity of, of teaching and endurance and discernment and, and going through difficulty. You have this quantity of all these different things, but the quality of love for God and others is lacking. They know all the right answers, but they're offered in a way that doesn't demonstrate God's form of agape love, his self-sacrificing love, a love that looks to the best of another at great cost to oneself. That's, that's God's love. It, it's, it's seeking our benefit at great cost to him. And so what we're called then to do is to live that kind of love out. And so we want to be able to love others seeking their best, and their best is always God's best, not their definition of best. My definition of best for myself is not God's definition until I align mine with his. But uh, that's, that's something we have to watch out for. Am I, am I saying that my best for myself is something that's not in alignment with what God says? And if it's not, then, then I need to be told that. And so there's a place where God's form of agape love, it, it calls out the places that we don't align our understanding of life with what God reveals to be best. So there's a part where we have to step up and we have to offer the truth, but it needs to be done in a way that's loving. These two things have to come together. Now, how did the Ephesian church get to be this way, you might ask? How did they get to this place where they were all head, no heart? They had all the right answers, but they were offered in a way that didn't demonstrate God's kind of love. Uh, we already mentioned that in Acts chapter 20, Paul warned that some of the leaders would betray the cause of Christ, distorting the truth and leading disciples away. Rather than to Jesus, they would lead them to themselves or to, to some, form of, some form of idolatry. Those are people that were leaders in the church. 
If you know First and Second Timothy, Timothy was left by Paul in Ephesus to be a leader in the church there. And his primary charge was to command certain people to stop, false, to stop teaching false doctrine. Uh, that's in 1 Timothy 1.3, and you see it throughout the letter that Paul goes to Timothy and he says, one of your main jobs is to call people out who are teaching false doctrine and to do it publicly, to tell everyone that this person is not teaching what the apostles taught. Their understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and how to have right relationship with God is wrong. Um, in fact, in 1 Timothy 1.19 and 20, Paul names several of the leaders in Ephesus who are doing this. He calls them out by name in one of his letters and says, these three people are leading people away from the teaching that is right and true in Jesus Christ, and they're doing it, uh, leading people into idolatry and away from right relationship with God. And so what you see in this church is that after years of maintaining right, right doctrine, orthodoxy, there are issues with correct practice. So they, they, they've got their orthodoxy right, uh, their, their correct doctrine, but their orthopraxy, how to practice Christianity, is off. Okay, And so when we talk about doctrine, this is something I can teach you. I can tell you what the scriptures say. I can show you who Jesus is and what the right understanding and teaching on who he is and how to have a relationship with God. I can show you that from the scriptures. But when we talk about right practice, that's something I have to live in front of your eyes. And so doctrine can be taught. Practice is more caught than taught. It's something that we see and witness and then live. And they were missing the part where their practice matched Jesus' practice. Their teaching matched Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the apostles, but their practice of loving others was off. And so Jesus calls them out for that. And he tells them that they need to repent. And that word repent, it means to change one's mind. It's, the idea is to remove wrong patterns of thinking and re replace them with Christ's ways of thinking. Uh, one commentator says it's to make a clean break with your present manner of life. So the call to them is to make a clean break with their present manner of life in which they were heavy with the truth. Anybody ever do this to you with the truth? They use it in a way that it's like a hammer. And when you get done in a conversation with them, the truth just feels like something that crushes you because there's no love. And so he's telling that instead of being just this group of people that hammers the truth home every time, you need to mix in what God demonstrates to us in his love. You need to, you need to follow the ways of Jesus. Now, one of the other things, this, is, this is, was the problem in the Ephesian church, heavy-handed truth, beating people up with it. Now, one of the things that we recognize in our culture is that you could go to the opposite side of this. And with, within our culture, they tell us that the, the right understanding of tolerance is to let people do what they want to do and not call it out for what it is. Now, that's, that's how our culture defines love. Love is allowing you to do whatever you want, right? That's tolerance. That's love. Now, that's not the biblical definition of love because a biblical definition of love includes discipline. A biblical definition of love includes truth. So what our culture is saying is that in order for me to love you, I need to leave you alone and allow you to pursue your sin. Whatever feels right, do it. Well, that's essentially saying embrace the patterns of your flesh that are opposed to God. That's not love. Actually, Romans chapter 1 reveals that one of God's greatest forms of wrath is to allow people to do whatever they want without him interceding. That's actually a form of hate and wrath, not a form of love. And so what our culture preaching to us, that we should allow people to do whatever they want and not call it out for what it is, is actually a form of wrath. So you say, I'm loving this person by not calling out their sin. God says that's actually a form of hate. 
Not stepping up and offering the truth is actually a form of wrath. It's a form of hate. And so our, our culture's definition is it's antithetical to love. It misses what love is completely because love will call out wrong for what it is, but it does it in a way that offers forgiveness and grace. And so there has to be this mixture of not this heavy-handed beat-you-up truth and not this nonsensical love is allowing people to do whatever they want, but it has to find this balance in the middle where Jesus would step into a person's life and he would call the sin out for what it was and then he would offer them a path of forgiveness. This combination of grace and love, of truth and love. And so this is the pattern that we're called to follow. As Christ's life is evident in us, we won't just watch people harm themselves and others and call it love. We'll call it out for what it is. Harming yourself and harming others is something that needs to be dealt with in your life. You need to repent from that. You need to receive forgiveness and new life in Jesus Christ. And so, so instead of getting way over here in the heavy-handed truth, instead of getting way over here in this, this definition of love that is actually not love, we find ourselves pulling these two things together. The tension is where, where, is where salvation resides. It's in the tension between truth and grace that salvation resides. It's in the tension between grace and truth that Jesus lives. And so we call people to this place. We live in this place. And that's what he's calling the, these people in Ephesus to do. The combination of right doctrine and right practice brought together. The combination of truth and love joined to each other. Then he says as he finishes these, uh, these verses that if they don't repent, he will remove their lampstand from its place. The idea there is that the church will no longer be. Um, the church in Ephesus was there for a long time. The city itself fell apart as the harbor receded and it lost its place in Asia Minor. Uh, you can go to Ephesus today. Um, you could... Uh, you can actually hop on YouTube and watch some really cool videos that show you the layout of the city and the old library and where the temples were and different things within the city. Um, but it, 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 de it decreased in importance and then people left the city. Um, and uh, so there's not a church there today. But it probably has less to do with them being unrepentant and more to do with just the course of the way that the world went in Ephesus. But then he says, if you, so if you don't repent, you'll remove your place within the church. And then he says, I do have this for you, that you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. And so now we need to know who they are. Uh, this is a group of people who follow the teaching of a man named Nicholas. There's different viewpoints on this. This may be a man that was one of the original deacons um, uh, called to serve the widows in the early Jerusalem church in 6.5. They're not certain if that's the case or not. He may be this guy. He may not. But the irony of his name is that it means the victory of the people. And so this person was standing up and he was teaching and then leading others to believe that the way to experience victory in life, the way to experience life to the fullest, was to worship the creation and do whatever you wanted to do sexually. Does that sound familiar? Worship the creation. Experience everything that you can from the creation. Worship created things. Materialism. And do whatever you want sexual, sexually, the sexual revolution. I wonder if you live in a place like this. Um, and so this was the teaching that you can worship, you should worship the creation without God, that you can experience the fullness of life by exploring what's out there in the world um, and then do whatever you want sexually. And that's how you'll have life. 
Now, the other thing that came from this is the other thing that was prominent in Ephesus was if you wanted to worship at one of the temples, there were temple prostitutes. Well, where do you get temple prostitutes? Well, when sexuality becomes something that is not in a covenant relationship and, it, and it's not part of procreation, but instead it's, a, it's something that's done without thought for the consequences of, crea- of procreation, you end up with unwanted babies. And when you end up with unwanted babies, what do you have to do? You have to get rid of them. And so one of the practices within Ephesus was to take these babies to the temple or leave them on a mountainside for dead, and they would either use them in slavery, often as temple prostitutes, or they would just leave them and let them die. So infanticide and, and, and sexual slavery were common at the, in Ephesus and throughout the Roman world. But what happens here is, is a, a progression where we leave God and we say that we can find, whatever, we can find life in creation. And then when we seek to find life in in creation without God, we then enter into a place where we say, well, let's see what's out there sexually. And then we leave the covenant relationship that marriage is intended to be, intimacy and procreation inside of marriage. That's God's design for sexuality. You should either be chased outside of marriage or faithful inside of it. One or the other, that's God's design. And when we leave that design, we end up with unwanted babies. Does this sound like something that happens in our culture? We worship the creation, we do whatever we want sexually, we end up with unwanted babies. What do we do with unwanted babies? We abort them. And so this practice is nothing new. And I bring this up in part because it's what took place in Ephesus, but I also think that as we see the abortion debate take place, as Christians we need to know how to think. Okay? We need to know how to think biblically about this. And when we look at abortion, this is something that God, it's very clear, God values life from the moment of conception. He knit us in our mother's womb. He knew us right then and there. And then we value life from the moment of conception all the way to natural death. And to do anything else with life, end it in any other way, is sin. We value life from the moment of conception all the way to natural death. We don't end life early uh, and and we don't take it away early, right? Uh, We value it all the way. And so this is what God, how God would lead us to think. And so when we see the things that are going on within our government, what's government supposed to do? Why does God have government in the first place? So as we look at what's going on in the Supreme Court, the reason that God has brought government about, you can see this in Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, is that it is, is intended to be something that rewards those who do good. And not my version of good, not your version of good, not the world's version of good, God's version of good. It's supposed to reward people who do God's version of good. And the, the words that Paul uses in Romans 13 is that it should be a terror to those who do evil. That it should put people in a position that take life and devalue life in a position where they are afraid of their government. Government. That's what good, godly government would do. And so our laws currently, they don't do that. They don't put people in a position where they go, this is wrong to take human life. They're actually told that it's okay to take human life. And so our, our laws hopefully will change. But behind all of that is something far deeper. It's the idea that we are good without God. It's the idea that we can determine right and wrong without him. It's the idea that we can, we can go into this world and experience life as God has intended it to be without him. That sexuality is something that's cheap and easy and to be consumed rather than something that's intimate and deep and procreative. And when we do that, when we do that, we end up in a position where we have unwanted life and when we have unwanted life, we're willing to take it. And government should teach us otherwise. 
And if government doesn't, it is certainly the job of the church to do so. Now, there's a balance here again. We need to balance love and truth. Because there are many people who have been through this where they, they, they were worshiping the creation or in a night of foolishness, they made a decision they didn't want to make and they find themselves with a baby. They find themselves pregnant. And then culture around them or maybe the person that they engaged in this with pushes them to abort the baby. And, and they're lost, they're confused. And the other thing is, is they're scared. One of the scariest things for a woman to do within the church is to say that they have an unwanted pregnancy outside of wedlock because they're going to experience shame from the church rather than grace and love. And then maybe, so, so in fear, they, they go through with the abortion and now they've, they've aborted a baby. And the last thing, the, one of the last places they would feel safe to go for help is the church because the church, again, issues shame. It's this heavy-handed truth and pushing people away rather than what you did, certainly, and I've, I know two women that have had abortions and I've talked to them. Neither of them said to me, I'm so glad I did it. It was a place where they, that was hurt from a place of confusion and fear. And what they need is this love to be drawn in and cared for by Jesus. There's grace and forgiveness, but there's also truth. We don't want to go down this path again. We need to deal with the idolatry in your life. We need to deal with the issues of sexual sin in your life. And you need to be forgiven. There's a, there's a path to forgiveness in this truth. And this is what the church should be known for. But much like the Nicolaitans, our society says that the victory of the people is to worship the creation, to do whatever you want sexually, and to abort the consequences of it. And we, the church, should be very good at sharing. There's truth, and there's grace, and in the middle of this tension is forgiveness and new life found in Jesus. And so this is what the church is being called to. Maybe this is something that we need to repent of. Maybe there's a part of your pattern of thinking that needs to change. And now the irony of this man's name, the Nicolaitans, is Jesus says in verse 7, let anyone who hears, excuse me, let, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There, that phrase there, to the one who conquers, uh, the, the Greek word for conquer, conquer is, a, is a, play on word on the Nicola, or a play on words on the Nicolaitans. It means victory. It means conquering. And so Jesus says that if you want to conquer, if you want to experience life in its fullness, if you want to eat from the tree of life, which is communion and unity with God, and you would like your life here on earth to be a paradise, the, the, the Greek word there is a, is a take from a Persian word that means pleasure park. God is saying, if you would like to experience life in its fullness and you would like your life to be pleasurable? Would anybody like that? Would you like to experience any life, life in the fullness and would you like your life to be pleasurable? God has an answer. He says, the one who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says. If you would like to experience victory in life, if you would like to have closeness with God and eat from the tree of life and you would like to experience pleasure in life, he says, be really good at this. Having an ear that's tuned to the Spirit. Have an ear that's tuned to hearing what the Spirit says to you. Walk in the Spirit. Abide in Him. Be filled 
with the Spirit. If you can get really good at that, you're going to experience life as God has, has intended it. If you, can, if you can get yourself in a place where you stop trying and you start trusting, if you can get yourself in a place where you turn away from the world and fix your eyes on Jesus, if you can get to this place, you're going to experience life to the fullest and your life will be pleasurable. Not always, because growth requires some difficult seasons. But even in the difficulty, you will experience the pleasure of knowing God. And so one of the things that we do with pleasure, and this is another lie that comes from uh, the, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. One of the, one of the ideas that we have about pleasure is we have to turn our ears off to God so that we can go experience pleasure. So I'm going to turn my ears off to God's definition of sexuality and go do what I think is pleasurable. I'm going to turn my ears off to what God says about money and possessions and go find life in those things. I'm going to turn my ears off to what God says about having relationship in a deep way with other people and I'm going to have the shallow thing instead. We think, that, we think that in order to have pleasure, we have to stop listening to God. That's a lie. Because what the scriptures say, and what Jesus is saying here, is if you'd like to eat from the tree of life, and you'd like to live in the paradise of God, pay attention to God's voice. Listen to God's voice. And so what our culture has done with, say, sexuality is we've said, close your ears to what God has to say and go experience it outside of marriage in a free, easy way. Go connect in a deep and meaningful, intimate way with other people without covenant relationship. And we think, okay, good. I'm going to stop listening to God and I'm going to pay attention to what our culture says. And this is what's burning people over and over again in their sexual relationships is the idea that you're going to find pleasure in that way. All you're going to do is give something to somebody and take something from someone that you're not committed to. And then you're going to separate and wonder why it hurts. And what God tells us is that when we have sexual relationship inside of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman who are committed to each other for the rest of their lives, that this is where actual sexual pleasure can and should and does take place. Without the burn, without the hurt, without the separation. Maybe, you know, one of the other big lies of our culture is materialism. And so we think that in the consumption of products and the acquisition of money, and the growth of our bank account, and the size of our house, and the newness of our car, and the fill in the blank, right? Just keep going. That we're going to find life. That that's what's going to bring us pleasure. And we know full well, anyone who's actually honest with themselves knows full well that it never works. What God teaches us about money and possessions is that they're intended to be used and leveraged for his kingdom. When we, when we look at our money and our talent and our, and our possessions as something that God has given to us as leverage, as stewards for his kingdom, all of a sudden we start investing in something that lasts for forever. 
We stop investing our time and our effort and our money in things that are temporal, and we start investing our time and our money and our abilities and our talent, so on and so forth, into something that is eternal, God's kingdom. And when you do that, when you see God's kingdom grow as you have faithfully, spirit-led, used what God has given you for his name's sake and people come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, now you experience pleasure. Now you experience purpose. Now you experience something that's worth living. And these are the things that were screaming out to us, saying, close your ears to God and come on over here. Ignore God and do what you want. And what this says is if you can get really good at listening to where the Spirit is leading you, then, then, and only then, will you experience life as God intended it and lasting, meaningful pleasure. The other thing that this passage is talking about is when Jesus returns. That he is going to, uh, the passage we looked at last week, he said that he had the keys to death in Hades, that he has the right to judge those who have rejected him and, and punish them. In, 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 when you get to the end of this book, he casts them into the lake of fire. All evil and sin is done away with. Those who reject Jesus receive the pattern of their lives in, in eternity. Those of us who are part of Jesus' kingdom, we are promised in Revelation chapter 21 a new heavens and a new earth where there's no sin, there's no shame, there's no crying, there's no death. It's a place where right practice and right belief only ever exist. That's, that's the place that we're promised. Now, on Mother's Day, one of the things that, that I witnessed in my life, my, 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 my dad's mom died when he was young. And so one of the things I want to say is I know Mother's Day is actually a hard day for a lot of people. Um, today is a day where maybe you go, you know, everybody else is celebrating, but this actually hurts for me. Um, this is actually a difficult day for me because I lost my mom, or I, I know someone who, when they were young, their mom left, and so they don't have their mom. And so one of the things that the church should be a place is if you've lost your mom for one of those reasons or other ones, is there are spiritual moms here. There are women who would care for you. There are women who would love you and look after you. Some of us need that spiritual mom. But on my, on my mom's side of my family, I got to know my grandmother pretty well, and I even got to know my great-grandmother. Uh, when we would go to Mima and Granddad's house in Campbell, California, um, I would actually describe their house as a, it was it was it was it was bliss. It was such a great place to be, um, and part of that was because Southern California, their backyard was amazing. There was all these different fruit trees, and we just had so much fun there. But enough, but the bigger part of it was that my great grandmother and my great grandfather, when you walked into their house, you were going to catch what it was like to have a relationship with Jesus. They probably weren't going to preach at you, but you were going to catch what it was. You were going to see them read their Bible. You were going to listen to their prayers before meals. Uh, you were going to hear them talk about life and what meaningful life really is. And so I witnessed that with my, my great-grandmother. And, my great, and, and then my, my grandmother on my mom's side, she was another woman who, when you went to her house, you saw what a relationship with Jesus was like. Later in life, I got to see her prayer journal. Uh, we got to see the notes in her Bible. We got to witness through her what it was like to have a relationship with Jesus. And I would say the same thing of my mother. 
that as I grew up, she was someone that maybe she wouldn't always teach me a whole lot, but I always caught right practice. And here's the other thing about her. When practice wasn't right, she would tell me and repent. She would own it. And so one of the things that we want to be able to do as Christians, and I think on Mother's Day, if the mom's in the room, the grandmother's in the room, the great-grandmother's in the room. Um, there's a time and a place to teach and to share the truth from Scripture. But know this. When your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids walk into your house and they watch your faith, that's huge. That's huge. And what God is calling, what Jesus is calling the church in Ephesus to be is that kind of place. A place where when you walk in the room, you hear right doctrine, you hear the truth, but you also catch what it is to have right practice. The tension of grace of truth and grace and salvation and new life in the middle is evident. And so my prayer for us as a church and for you in your life is that would be evident in us. And, and hear me, you can't do this on your own. God doesn't even ask us to. He doesn't tell us to be really good at having 10 rules that'll fix your life and get you in order. He tells us to be really good at listening to what the Spirit says. He doesn't tell you to get it in order and then he'll bless you. He says, I'm going to bless you and get you in order as you follow my spirit, as you abide, as you grow your ear at listening to Jesus and the spirit over the world. And so don't stop up your ears and think that you can find life in creation, sexuality, and abandoning the consequences. Instead, get in this place where your ears are open to the Spirit of God. You're listening to what He's saying to you. And then, you do it. You live it. You experience life. And your life becomes a place, not of burden, but a place of pleasure. Let me pray. Father, I do pray this morning that you would center us. Center us in your truth and your love. Center us in your, in your grace and your kindness. As your son Jesus walked this earth and he was a master at, he's the only one who ever got it right every time. The only one that's ever walked this earth and got it right every time. The balance between truth, what someone needs to hear, and love, what someone needs, how someone needs to be cared for. I pray that as we walk in your spirit and we're attentive to your spirit, that you would guide us in this way that you would teach us to pattern our life after you, that you would grow us to think biblically in all matters, in all areas of life. And that would be a light to the world around us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.